1: So in December, I sat down with some guys from a hedge fund in New York. They were launching what's called a qualified opportunity fund. Here's how that works. If you're holding an asset that got more valuable last year, probably shares in a company, that's a capital gain. You owe taxes on it this year. But put that gain in a qualified opportunity fund and you don't pay those taxes. Then leave it there for 10 years and it grows tax-free the entire time. The hedge fund guys thought this was exciting, and they were looking for clients in Silicon Valley, places where people hold a lot of stock, often in a single company. Diversify your investment out of your unicorn. Don't pay taxes. It is a really good deal. All of this money then goes to investments, things like apartment complexes and warehouses that are located in a list of areas with low incomes. They're chosen by the governor of each state, and they're called Opportunity Zones. Here's Cory Booker. He's a senator from New Jersey, he's a Democrat, and he's also one of the people who made sure this tax break became law. Listen to how he sums it up. Tim and I were able to get a lot of the parked capital back invested into areas that are the best emerging markets on the planet Earth, which are here right here in the United States of America. That's from an interview with New Jersey Public Media. When he says Tim, he's talking about Tim Scott, Republican senator from South Carolina. Both parties are behind this idea. But the language he uses, it comes from finance. When investors talk about emerging markets, they're talking about risky places with bad institutions that offer high returns, places like Brazil, India, China. The phrase emerging market is a coded challenge to the pros. It says, if you're a risk taker, take this risk. Now, around the same time I was talking to these hedge funders, I was reading a book called The Color of Money. It's by Marissa Baradaran. She's a law professor at the University of Georgia. The book is about the history of black banks in America trying to provide capital to families in black neighborhoods. And I thought, reading the book, we have done this before. Here's Baradaran.
2: They used to be called black ghettos. These were enforced by real sort of violence and then law and then, you know, law backed by violence. Um, So they're, they're properly ghettos, but then they become, you know, black neighborhoods and now they're opportunity zones.
1: This is Alpha Chat. It's a project from the Financial Times and the Road Center for International Economics and Finance at Brown University. I'm Brendan Greeley. I'm the U.S. editor for FD Alphaville. I'm talking to Marissa Baradaran. She's in Georgia, I'm in D.C., about the history of what we now call opportunity zones.
2: If We're going to start. Let's. I mean, let's start at a pivotal point, which would be sort of during the civil rights era. And so you have during the '60s a lot of different um, movements that converge on um, one main problem. And the main problem is that you have had a lack of capital formation in these black ghettos because of segregation and because of you know exclusion and and the way that the markets work. And so you have lots of uh, coalitions um, trying to propose solutions to this. So you've got, you know, the MLK and SNCC and, and and a lot of the the legislators that work with them. And they each understood that, you know, segregation was the primary cause and that the solution was to either actually promote capital, right, so send capital into the black ghettos or to integrate, which would also require heavy government intervention. Um, you know, the Kerner Commission Report, which comes out in 1968, is very forceful. I mean, this is hundreds of sociologists and economists and everything. And they say, you know, look, white society created the ghetto and white society needs to fix it. And by white society, you know, we, you could take the federal government, the state, etc. Um, meanwhile um during this time there is a you know protest rioting in these um black ghettos after the the civil rights era and there's a lot of you know history behind that which i i try to cover as well and so there's this backlash forming as we are trying to decide Um, what to do with this. And the backlash is written by uh, Richard Nixon into office. And he um, devises uh, what he calls black capitalism as a response to this um, structural inequality. What he calls black capitalism is really just reinforced segregation. And so he says, look, Um, You want black power? I'll give you black power. You want, you know, black capital? I'll give you black capitalism. And what that means is that you get to control the, you know, you could have more businesses in your communities. And these businesses are going to be formed by you. You know, we will throw some, you know, uh, Perks here and there, and the perks aren't actually anything having to do with capital. It's you know deposits from administrative agencies, um, some contracts set aside, really minor things that are now even you know very controversial. You know, affirmative action was part of um, black capitalism. So this idea of zones where entrepreneurs are going to fix the problems um, that basically public policy created starts with Nixon, but it gets. Um, strengthen over time, you know, with Reagan and with Clinton. And so this, during the Reagan and Clinton era, you have a new language to talk about the Black Ghetto. We don't call it the Black Ghetto anymore. We don't even call it, you know, basically structural inequality. What well, we call them are um, opportunity zones, entrepreneurial zones. You've got Larry Summers saying, you know, these are um, niche markets where we're going to send entrepreneurs and they're going to find win-win profits Um And, you know, uh, this this is I mean, this
1: language, I'm sorry to interrupt, but it's fascinating to hear you use this language because. Cory Booker Mm -hmm. uh, has called these. I want to get the quote uh, right. uh, Domestic emerging
2: markets. Right. I mean, I I laugh because it is a joke. (laughs) I mean, it's it's a joke. I mean, this is something that the right and the left has converged on and have used this. You know, call it like whatever neoliberal market language. I mean, these zones were not created by the market. Yet we have deferred the solutions to the market. So instead of capital, we're going to give you entrepreneurs who are innovative. And the assumption here is that. Black, businesses and black capitalists, black entrepreneurs haven't been trying for generations um, to create capital themselves. They have been. And that's the story that I try to tell in the book. They, they have been plenty of innovations and you know entrepreneurs and banks and all sorts of stuff trying to basically suck capital from a rock. And it just doesn't work. It's not part of the mainstream capitalist system. And so when someone like Cory Booker or Reagan or Clinton, again, this is a bipartisan issue, right? They When they say, oh, we're going to have you know win win profits? This is an emerging market. You're going to go and use your some of them call them indigenous entrepreneurs, right? Um, you're going to use your local knowledge and create um, profit opportunities. It's this win win, right? We're going to change the world as you know the grameen model. So the microcredit model has it, right? Um, but we're going to do it without changing anything. We're not going to change the structure. Um, we're not going to integrate. We're not going to actually, it's not going to cost anyone anything. The market will fix it itself um, through these incentives and tax breaks and things like that. It's 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 nothing. It's a whole bunch of just rhetoric.
1: Well it seems like we're now at step three. Step one is, well, we should probably make sure that America is integrated. That clearly is not a thing that America is willing to do. Step two is OK, well, we'll try and make sure that people who didn't previously have capital um, are able to form capital. It didn't work for reasons that I'd like to get into. But we're now at step three, which is, OK, we're not going to integrate. We're not going to do the things necessary to help people form capital. So what we're going to do is encourage investment from, and again, to use Cory Booker's phrase, abroad, right? If we're treating these as these areas as domestic emerging markets, um then, then what we're doing is we're encouraging people from outside to invest, but then you don't need any capital formation in these areas. You have outside capital coming in, which means that any profits that are available go back out to outside capital.
2: Right. Yeah.
1: So we're, that's we're now. That's how capital at, works. <laughs> right. I'm sorry. Did you just say that's how capital works?
2: That's how capital
1: works. (laughs) That's fantastic.
2: I mean, the way that capital works is that the more capital you have, the more it's going to sort of accrue unto itself, right? So if you're an investor, you know, and you're looking for investments, you're going to grow your capital base, right? You can make a bad investment. But if you have zero capital in a region, right, and you're saying investors come invest in this, the people who are going to profit from that are the people who have the capital in the first place.
1: In your book, you make an interesting distinction, which is that black banks trying to form capital uh, in black neighborhoods and then white businesses coming in from the outside and having similar difficulties. Uh, making profits in these areas, so it seems like there's something endemic to the area that makes it both difficult for external capital to come in and make a profit, and internal capital formation to even take place. So, what is it about these areas that make capital formation so difficult?
2: So that's a really good question, and there's a complicated answer. I mean, one thing I will say is that the geography of these areas have shifted over time. So it is not as though, you know, I mean, the history of these areas are that they were redlined, they were deprived of, you know, FHA mortgage credit, GI loans, all of the stuff that helped or created, I should say, the American middle class. And the American middle class was created through credit but that also went into homes that increased in values. And the homes increased in values led to Schools that were full of, you know, homeowners' children, and that created social capital and all sorts of sort of complex multiplier effects of of wealth. However, in these inner cities, the, none of those subsidies or the, the, that whole credit apparatus that buoyed the middle class didn't make it into the inner city. Now, those areas have shifted over time, so you can say, well, you know, Harlem now is the most expensive real estate. Sure, but those original redlined residents in Harlem don't live there anymore or or they've been priced out and so they've been moved out. So, So one thing I'll say is that the geography has shifted a bit. But what you have still in those regions and the reason why the racial wealth gap still exists is that when you have a neighborhood that is largely black or brown and and mostly poor, because that's the nature of race and, and class in, in the United States, um, you do not have homes that increase in value. That's the primary sort of block to capital formation, right? So even if you were to able to get access to a loan that was wealth building and and bought a house in that region, you're not. It's not going to increase in value. And and why is because you know the markets have sort of racism embedded in it, right? The if white uh, home buyers, who are the majority, don't want to live in a largely black neighborhood. And the, the lack of wealth in generally black communities, um, you know, sort of diminish the demand um, for these homes. And then you've got the school issues and crime. Uh, they, quote, unquote, become bad neighborhoods. And when you have a, quote, unquote, bad neighborhood, you have, you know, flight of other capital and businesses and, and assets, right? So people, businesses and other sort of investors want to meet the demands of those who have capital, who have money to spend. And so there, there are these complicated sort of multiplier effects of, of both lack and of privilege. Maybe privilege is not the right word, but capital, right? So wealth. um. People who, live, people who are wealthy generally live among others who are wealthy and that wealth sort of multiplies and people who are poor end up living with those who are poor and then that wealth diminishes. And so the problem here is that there's a race divide in certain regions, not all, but in those regions where there is a race divide, even black businesses, even you know, nonprofits, it's really difficult to create a uh, wealth building company, uh, business, bank, et cetera, in a area that is... Uh, concentrated poverty.
1: The point that you make is really important here, which is that we often talk about wealth creation and entrepreneurship as if it's a matter of uh, starting a business uh, or mm-hmm. um, or you know get, getting some sort of seed money. We we talk about this in the way that people in financial markets talk about it. When in fact, for almost everyone in America, the path to wealth has been very clear: you take a salary or you earn a wage and then you buy a house. The house is the bottom five rungs on the ladder towards any sort of wealth formation.
2: Absolutely. And there's the buffers, the buffers as well, right? So how many people can you go to for a $10,000 loan, you know, in, in the event that you need to start a you know business or something goes wrong in your life or you need rent for, you know, it, people who are poor live among other people who are poor. And so those buffers, once they're gone, that, that decline is steep, right? So most of us don't ever have to go to a payday loan or a subprime loan for a house. But for those who do, that wealth... Um, sort of retracts quickly, and entrepreneurship. I mean, as mythologized as it is, is not, as you said, the way to middle class wealth. We think of entrepreneurs. We, you know, we, we kind of go quickly to Zuckerberg and, you know, Bezos and all these really um, profitable, you know, and uh, successful entrepreneurs. But ninety. Nine percent of entrepreneurs are sort of one-man shops, right? Um, th- these are not wealth-building uh, businesses. Most people that build wealth go and work for a company. They get a salary. They get a 401k. They get a mortgage. And that's how they build middle-class wealth.
1: So, I mean, it sounds like when you talk about the buffers not being there, it seems like the key to to having wealth is not just – Getting a salary and buying a house and letting it uh, accumulate in value, but having the good luck to have had your parents do that as well so that there's a capital buffer within the family.
2: Absolutely. And there's a social capital as well that we haven't talked about, right? Social capital, school capital. If you're Wealthy or middle class, your school has more resources. you have social capital. you know doctors and lawyers and other professionals, right? You can shadow them, you can get internships. I mean, these are the soft things that I think most of us don't realize. I mean, we sort of look at our lives and look at all the hard work we did, and sure we did hard work, but we all there there are connections. Um, there are sort of just people who can model you know the sort of professional behavior and and other sort of soft um, social capital that that actually ends up becoming uh, profitable.
1: It seems like the other thing that comes up when we talk about certain areas um, where it's hard to form capital is that if you talk about areas in America, then we don't have to talk about people. If we talk about mm-hmm. opportunity zones, then what we don't have to say out loud is black families. It, it, do you think there's a mm-hmm. cultural preference among politicians to talk about areas because it prevents us from talking about the deeply uncomfortable thing that Americans are, find it hard to talk about, which is race?
2: Absolutely. I I mean, we whitewash this history, right? First, you know, um, they used to be called black ghettos. And I actually like using that term because ghetto sort of implies the truth. These were not um, chosen communities. These were enforced by bomb's by racial covenants, you know, bombs first, then racial covenants, then zoning, you know, real sort of violence and then law and then, you know, law backed by violence. Um, so they're, they're properly ghettos, but then they become, you know, black neighborhoods um, and now they're opportunity zones, you know. And, and meanwhile, we've lost the history of the fact that the poverty in these zones was created. Um, and Martin Luther King actually says this, you know, segregation is not a matter of just housing. It's a matter of oppression. You know, poverty is created and it was created through um, law that enforced segregation.
1: So let's look at these areas uh, or let's look at these families instead and ask what the problem is. It seems like um, if you are a person who has a ton of capital, like uh, Sean Parker, you know, one of the founders of Facebook, is the one who had championed the idea mm-hmm. of Opportunity Zones. Um, and he mm-hmm. looked around and I think correctly saw that there was a ton of capital that was locked into uh, early founders um, of startups, of unicorns who had a ton of money, but all that money was in equity that they held in their unicorns. Um, and so he wanted that money to go somewhere else, not coincidentally, a lot of his own money is uh, locked up in equity as well. So in a way, his problem was that there were a ton of millionaires and billionaires and 100 millionaires in Silicon Valley with undiversified holdings. That's a problem, (laughs) but it's also a problem in looking for a solution. And so the solution turns out to be um, this piece of legislation that he championed that got added to the tax cut that creates opportunity zones. Um, Let's start from a completely different place and ask, what the problem is in these areas with these families rather than show up with capital and say this capital is going to solve the problem what is the problem there that is waiting to be solved
2: the problem that is that you need to create wealth right you don't need a new whole foods you don't need you know because harlem has been
1: wait i'm sorry i'm sorry to jump in real quick because it seems like there's a really important distinction we need to make here and i think it's the one that you're making which is that you need to create wealth for the people who live there
2: Exactly, <laughs> right. Exactly, because if you create just wealth in Harlem, if you make Harlem a true opportunity zone, then you're pricing the residents out, and they are not getting the wealth. It's the new investors, it's the gentrifiers that pick up on that because they have the capital. They can pay a down payment on a house and see that house skyrocket in value. That's what happened to formerly redlined areas in sort of East Bay, San Francisco, and in Harlem, New York. As you saw that gentrification, and you saw the people benefiting from that you know huge sort of skyrocketing housing prices so so what these families need to cover the racial wealth gap you know what you need what we need to do is to create wealth building mechanisms to sort of allow families to gain the benefit of that increased housing prices. So, you know, how have we done it in history? The FHA was able to do it. It created a credit mechanism that allowed people to, I mean, it built new communities. The Homestead Act. You know, I have a proposal, you know, looking at areas like Baltimore and Detroit that have a ton of abandoned properties and just taking them and handing those properties over to Uh, residents of redlined areas, including those that live there, and giving them the financing at very little interest to see those communities revitalized. You know, the details are yet to be worked out. And if the Silicon Valley people want to do that, that's a place to invest, right? You hand over a piece of property, land, you know, a mortgage, whatever, and allow for that wealth to accumulate. That's how you deal with the wealth of the area. You can't do it by, you know, Putting a Starbucks in there. Um, now you could, if you want to build jobs in those areas, then that's that's another way to do it. But those jobs have to be wealth building jobs. They can't be you know low wage uh, labor.
1: What's a wealth building job? What's the distinction?
2: A wealth building job is one that is long term. You know, it is one that is secure. Um, where you're getting paid more than what your life expenses are you know whether if it requires skills and there's training for it like one of the last places where the middle class can get these wealth building jobs even like the post office right the post office is a wealth building job you know it's not super high pay but it's secure it's unionized there's health care um, there's a regular schedule
1: a wealth building job doesn't have risk i mean one one issue and again this is a subject for another three hours of conversation we yeah. won't get into but one issue of the way we run our economy right now now is that more and more of the risk is mm-hmm. pushed off onto employees. And so mm-hmm. a wealth building job is one with the, the least amount of risk. Is that a yes. right way to think about it?
2: Yeah. Wage risk, wage volatility, and then the risks of other bad things happening to you, right? So having healthcare and having you know a pension or 401k, the risks of old age, like these general risks that we all used to sort of deal with together as a collective are now being born individually. And of course, the poor... Um, pay more for for those risks than do the wealthy.
1: Do you think that it will have measurable positive effect? Meaning, Tim Scott, the senator from South Carolina, who who also championed this, said uh, something along the lines of, "You know, I don't know whether it'll work, but I have 50 years worth of evidence of it not working when we don't do it." And one advantage of the way they structure the opportunity zones is that it's just completely unlimited, and that it, and that there's some hope that the, if there's just a bomb of capital in these areas, that something. Uh, will change. Is it possible that though this is not the ideal program and and it brings in capital from the outside and is not targeted at the people who don't have capital, that it will work?
2: It it will work given the metrics that it has. The problem is that when we pretend like these are the solutions and don't actually look at the causes of the problem. And so don't actually treat the disease, right? So if you have cancer and someone says, I'm going to give you a new car, like that car is going to make you quite happy. But like you you also need to get rid of the cancer, right? Um, so so I think this is what we've been doing is, look, these are great programs and, and it's hard to oppose them because why would you? But it doesn't really get at the root cause, which is a intergenerational Um, lack of capital due to segregation and and these other endemic sort of structural reasons. So sure, do the opportunity zones, but do them because you want to do the opportunity zones, not because they're a solution to a large systemic racial wealth gap.
1: Mayor Sparateron, thank you so much.
2: Thank you so much.
1: So here's what I took from that conversation. There's a difference between helping a zone and helping a community. A community has people in it. You can improve the capital stock in a zone. It may help the people who already live there, but it doesn't have to. That's the logic of finance in an emerging market. It doesn't have any social goals. It just wants the return. Opportunity zones are a financial solution to a community problem. Economists are just coming around to thinking about communities, but sociologists have always looked at people in groups. Andrew Schrank is a sociologist at Brown. He studies industrial policy. And so we had him sit down with Mark Blythe of the Rhodes Center, listen to that conversation with Marissa Baradaran,
0: and respond to it. Here's Mark. Opportunity zones, communities, investment, all the stuff we've been talking about. Sociologists have been studying this stuff for years. How do you think about this?
3: Well, I think that Professor Baradaran has a powerful critique. I think that we've had similar policies and institutions in the United States and other countries for years. And I think that they've come to the same sad ending as the ones that Maris is talking about. They, generally speaking, bring in a little bit of capital, if that, uh, and then they lead to profit repatriation. The people who bring in the capital, if they make money, bring the capital right back out. And the folks who are living in and around those zones tend to uh, be left behind and not really reap any rewards from these things, and insofar as there are rewards, if the opportunity zone really takes off, it's kind of a winner take all world. Uh, even Sean Parker, who is a big advocate of opportunity zones, admits that if you do this in hundreds of communities around the United States, at best, a few of them are really going to take off and the rest are going to be left behind. So the idea that this is any sort of radical solution or comprehensive solution to inequality and in particular racial inequality in the United States, is a pipe dream.
0: This is of course related to other factors. Let's just say what else could that be related to? I don't know, the entire legacy of kind of racialized capitalism, redlining, exclusion, uh, differential access to credit markets. And we've been studying this forever, but we always seem to come up short on solutions. Is it because, in a sense, this is just one part of a bigger set of issues? Or you know, it, it, Should we think about zones? Should we think about areas? Should we think about, this is something we're going to target, because if we do, this will make a difference? Or is that really the wrong way of thinking about it?
3: Well, I wouldn't say it's the wrong way of thinking about it. I'd say it's one part of a much bigger puzzle. But the problem is not only discrimination and inequality in credit markets or housing markets, although they're obviously a big part of the problem. It's discrimination in the tax code. It's discrimination in labor markets. It's inequality in schools. It's inequality in the justice system. This is pervasive in American society. And uh, while I wouldn't say it's uh, naive to try to push on one element of this in an isolated fashion, I worry about two things there may be more than two things. One thing I worry about uh, is if resources are limited and we pick the wrong thing to push upon, we could be wasting resources. Um, But simultaneously, this is an ecosystem of problems. And if you play with one element of an ecosystem without thinking of the broader ecosystem, it's entirely possible uh, that you wind up doing more harm than good. I wouldn't say that's necessarily the case for any of the specific policies being advocated here. It would require much more study and much more discussion. But I think at a macro level, we need to keep the ecosystem systemic nature of this in mind.
0: So listening to that interview, one of the things that struck me was how it's almost impossible to get away from the language of finance and investment. The Ultimately, the problem is a lack of investment. And then, then the critique is, well, it's not really just about investment. And then you say, so what's the solution? Well, we need to get more investment going on. Why do we keep coming back to this? What's going on?
3: Well, I think that we are obsessed with finance in the United States, and we believe that all of the solutions to all of our problems are related to finance. In you one mean way they're or not? Another. No, I don't think they are. And so she has a very powerful, and I think, damning critique of opportunity zones, which I would agree with 100%. But simultaneously, many of the proposals she puts on the table involve getting capital in the hands of poor and minority uh, Americans, in particular, in order to encourage home ownership, which is itself a form of investment. Uh, And let's think about what would happen if those proposals were actually adopted and actually did get capital into the hands of poor and minority Americans who could start to buy their own houses. What would happen? Well, I think there's plenty of evidence that what would happen? happen, is massive white flight. We've seen it before. Uh, More than half of African Americans live in the United States South. Uh, There is compelling evidence. In fact, the best evidence suggests that white men in the South are openly hostile to racial integration in their neighborhoods. In fact, the best data we have available says that 70% of white American Southern men are outraged by the mere possibility of an African-American family moving in next door. Uh, And this is very, very methodologically astute research. So what happens if proposals like this are adopted? And what happens if they actually do generate homeownership among poor and in particular African-American communities? Well, I think what you'd see is resegregation along different lines. And insofar as housing is related to schools, it's related to wealth accumulation, it's related to access to jobs and things like that. I think another thing we don't really consider when we talk about the housing market is demography in the United States and medium to long run changes in fertility rates. Fertility rates in the US are dropping, and there's every reason to believe they'll continue to drop. And as this happens, it's entirely possible that demand for housing will decline. And if that happens in a context in which we've used the housing market as a way to achieve social mobility by putting capital in the hands of low-income and minority communities so they can buy housing, and they start to put their own earnings and their own savings into this housing, and suddenly the housing isn't worth very much anymore in a context of demographic change, we're really pulling the rug out from people, under people, who really need to be helped. It doesn't mean it couldn't be part of a broader complex of, of efforts and policies, but on its own, I really don't think it's going to work.
0: So there's a kind of a stranded assets paradox in here, which is what you're suggesting is that if these communities are, let's say, helicopter dropped the cash to buy their houses or just given title, then the sort of the nature of the ecosystem to go back to that is such that in many cases, this would not raise the value of those assets over the long term. In fact, it might actually lead to the further impoverishment of those communities in ways that we can't predict at this point in time. That's very depressing, to say the least. So let's change it slightly. Is the only other alternative then to push these people out because that's the gentrification critique, right? We've got the opportunity zones, and then we've outlined what the problem with that is. But then the other side of that is the gentrification critique, which we also got into in the earlier interview, which is, hey, what are you worried about? You've got a Starbucks. Your property values are going up. And what that does is basically push the people who live there out as new wealthier tends to be white groups come in. Is that the only other way this gets played out? Well.
3: I think Professor Baradaran has a powerful critique of gentrification. And again, I agree with her on this 100%. Uh, Her argument is not just that gentrification happens and that low income and minority homeowners or renters are pushed out, but that the people who profit off of that gentrification tend to be from other communities. If they were from those communities, you could imagine some sort of virtuous circle taking off, albeit with consequences including negative consequences along the way. Uh, But insofar as the beneficiaries of gentrification do not uh, come from low income or minority communities, it's all to the bad. Uh, I agree with that. Uh, At the same time, I think that there are alternatives beyond gentrification. And I think that one thing we need to keep in mind is that what's really required is a cultural shift. Uh, We need to combat racism in this country because it's racism that's the root cause of all of these problems, whether it's manifest in the housing market, the credit market, the job market, uh, the schools, the justice system, and what have you. And I think that you're very unlikely to push that cultural shift through finance or through investment. I think there are other institutions in American society uh, where you're much more able to push such a cultural shift. It would be hard. It would take generations. But I think we need to at least begin looking at the institutions where that could occur.
0: So let's put this into a more global context. Over the weekend, I was reading um, Christophe Guillet's book, The Twilight of the Elites, which is about France, which would seem to be quite removed from this. But he gives a very similar critique. Essentially, he says the reason that basically French politics is in turmoil, nobody believes the elites' populism is on the rise, is because the working classes of France have essentially been gentrified out of all of the metropolitan areas, confined to the periphery, in their place has come immigrant and migrant labor, which is marginal, is easily disposable, is much more easily hireable, fireable, kind of invisible. And what sort of modern capitalism needs is 20% highly skilled knowledge workers are smattering them of immigrant labor, and essentially, the French working classes are done. Now, this seems to me to be slightly similar to the story in haunting ways. But we could also extend it and say, what's happening to the American middle class is similar to this, hence Trumpism, so on and so forth. Is there a way in which, rather than focus on an apolitical solution that brings minority communities up to the level of white communities, we're in danger of residualizing white communities to the level of minority communities?
3: I think it's more than similar. I mean, I think it's extraordinarily similar to what's going on in France, what's going on in the UK around Brexit, uh, and what's going on in much of the industrial or post-industrial world. And I think the point you make about the white middle class is, is very much on point. Uh, the way I would think about this vis-a-vis the earlier interview is as follows. Uh, we were talking earlier about the lack of access to FHA loans in the African American community in the New Deal and the post-New Deal era and redlining, and that's certainly true. Uh, and- the legacy of that has been pernicious. Uh, but if you were to adopt policies to try to make FHA loans or things like FHA loans available to African Americans and low-income African Americans in particular, in order to finally bring them into the New Deal bargain that benefited families like my own, at a time when those middle-class white families are themselves seeing the rug pulled out from under them, not just in the housing market, but in the labor market where the jobs have gone offshore and the unions have been destroyed, in the school system where in 22 states there are schools that now only uh, meet four days a week because they don't have enough money to keep schools open for the fifth day, which has huge ramifications beyond the school system because mom and dad can't both work five days a week if someone has to stay home and take care of the kids, et cetera, et cetera. Bringing African-Americans and low-income African-Americans into that bargain ain't going to have the same consequences for those communities as it had for my family back in the 1950s.
0: So if we give up on opportunity zones, if we recognize that areas are a code word for people and disadvantaged communities that essentially what we're really doing is tax concessions for ourselves and a little bit of asset stripping and it all sounds terribly cynical and everything's connected to everything else is there anything that we can do apart from an intergenerational march through the institutions to solve all problems is there an upside to any of this or is it just really just empty rhetoric
3: I wouldn't say it's empty rhetoric, but I don't think it's the best place to place our bets in the early 21st century. Uh, if I were czar, and I had the complete power to try to do something about this, I would probably be looking at institutions other than banks and investment uh, institutions. I would be looking in particular at schools. Um, not because I think schools are a key source of human capital that's going to position traditionally disadvantaged kids uh, to compete better on the labor market, although if the schools were re-engineered appropriately, maybe they would do that. Uh, but because I think if you were to do something to desegregate the schools, you could have cultural consequences that would be enormous. One thing that Marissa talked about was social capital. Uh, and if you're in a largely segregated school where you not only is there racial inequality, but there's class inequality, you lack that not only access to perhaps better teachers or classroom resources, but your parents lack access to the social networks that are made outside the school waiting to pick up the kids every day. Uh, you lack access, if you're a white kid, to kids from other communities, other racial and ethnic groups who might you know help you uh, combat or the prejudice that Been instilled in you by your family over generations. And so I think the schools are a key institution in which the government can not only fight the inequalities in human capital, but fight the inequalities in social capital and cultural capital and really begin to transform the culture, albeit very, very, very slowly. The other place I would look is in the labor market, and in particular, trying to empower workers. One thing that happened in the New Deal and the post-New Deal era was through the Wagner Act, the National Labor Relations Act, and the Fair Labor Standards Act, and a whole host of labor regulations, workers became much better able to exercise voice at work. And as they became better able to exercise voice at work, they became better able to exercise voice in politics and to counterbalance some of these inequalities across the entire American society. Those benefits redounded disproportionately to the benefit of low-income Americans and minority Americans. But insofar as the Taft-Hartley amendments gutted the Wagner Act, the Fair Labor Standards Act is barely enforced anymore, uh, and we have a very irrational system of labor law implementation enforcement, workers have lost that voice. They've lost that power, and they're unable to achieve countervailing authority against an employer class, which is hegemonic.
0: So schools, labor market reform, more fundamental than opportunity zones, which may just be masquerading a little bit of round tripping and tax advantage for those that can put the investment in and then pull it out at will. Yeah,
3: I think we need changes that go from strength to strength. And I think the changes that are likely to go from strength to strength are much more likely to happen in the school system and the labor market than they are in opportunity zones.
0: Andrew Shank, thank you very much.
3: Thank you.
1: Alpha Chat is produced by Dan Richards at the Broad Center for International Economics and Finance and Amy Keane from the Financial Times. We'll be posting show notes on Alphaville with links, but as always, we want to understand when you listen and what you want to hear. So please email us at alphachat at ft.com. Thank you to the listener Australia who said we could probably assume that people come to this show already with basic knowledge about finance and economics. We have thought a lot about this. We don't yet have a great answer. We will work to get the tone right. For my part, I promise to remember there are still huge barriers to simply owning a home, which in America, at least, is the way you build wealth.